Hi, I'm Joe Varaka. Welcome to Unripe, where I talk to experts and women like you and me as we find a place in the world and a community of women who are childless by circumstance or child-free by choice. I'm going to talk about IVF, being single and childless, childless and married like me, or in a relationship, abortion, losing friends to motherhood, and all the topics that people just don't like to talk about. So let's make these conversations part of the mainstream. Come on, join me. Hello, 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 my friends. Today I'm talking with Laura Curtis. Laura is an artist and I love talking to artists. They've always got some unique voice, something cool to say, something I haven't thought about before. And to be honest, today Laura is telling me, telling us a few interesting things that she's doing. So Laura uses her voice to tell stories through song and sound. She's a music teacher. She is a singer and she also teaches uh, singing I met Laura on Instagram. I mean, isn't that where everybody meets these days? Laura lives in London, Ontario, in Canada's East Coast, a pebble's throw away from Michigan and Ohio. And let's face it, really, really close to Europe. So when she talks about hopping over to Iceland for a few days, it's because it's literally across some tiny water. Anyway, so she lives there with her husband, whom she went when she was 22. He was 36 at the time and had already had a vasectomy after a series of long-term relationships with partners who really weren't interested in having kids. A smart man. When they met, Laura had just finished college and she was looking for a traditional life settle down, get married, have children. So right at the start, she let him know exactly what she wanted and that if he wasn't on board, then it may not work out for them. Smart woman. Wait, I'll let Laura tell you the story. Hi, Laura. Hi, Joe. It's nice to meet you. So I met my husband in 2004. I was 22 and uh, my husband was 36 at the time. And he had, um, he'd had a vasectomy uh, about two years before I met him. He'd been in a series of long-term relationships where his uh, partners weren't interested in having children and he didn't mind either way. So he thought it would be the easier route to uh, have a vasectomy. And so when I met him, I was on a, on a life path. I just finished college. I wanted to settle down, get married, have children as, as we do, as we're, sort of program to do. And so when we met, I said to him, you know, I was really interested in, I would like to get married and have children. And if that was not in the cards for him, that it was possibly not going to work for us. He, he was in agreement that that was fine. And we fell pretty hard, pretty fast. He had his vasectomy reversed. He was very nervous about getting the test done after his vasectomy reversal because he was afraid that I wouldn't want to marry him if he if it hadn't worked and we weren't able to have children. To which I replied, no, I would very much like to marry you regardless of whether or not we were able to have children. And so we waited to have the test done. We got married. And about a year later, he had the, the test done to find out and we found out that the vasectomy reversal had not worked. Let's talk about vasectomy reversals. When a man chooses to have a vasectomy, it's considered permanent sterilization. However, some men will consider vasectomy reversal down the line. Around 6 to 10% of vasectomy patients change their minds and undergo a reversal. It's doable with microsurgery, but here's the thing. 
testicles don't stop making sperm, but the sperm is unable to travel to its destination, let's call it, you can still ejaculate. Yes, guys, you can still use your parts, but there's no sperm. According to the Mayo Clinic, pregnancy rates after vasectomy reversal will range from around 30 to 90%, depending on the type of procedure. A lot of factors can affect if a reversal is successful in achieving pregnancy, including the time that's passed since the vasectomy, the age of the partner, surgeon experience and training, and whether or not you had fertility issues before your vasectomy. So almost all vasectomies can be reversed, but it doesn't guarantee success in conceiving a child. Vasectomy reversal can be attempted even if several years have passed since the original vasectomy, but the longer it's been, the less likely that the reversal will work. In Laura's case, the reversal didn't work because of scar tissue that was caused by the original surgery. And what they learned is that the body reabsorbs the sperm and starts to teach itself that it's no longer needed and it slows down pr production. I mean, the body is truly amazing. With Laura, unfortunately, this meant that their options became somewhat limited. So Laura's fertility was fine, but without sperm, that really doesn't mean much. The couple was devastated when they heard about the news. You know, it's funny the things that you remember very clearly. And, and what I remember is that my husband and I, we were driving to Ottawa for a snowmobile conference. We we're about halfway to Ottawa and uh, my husband received a phone call from the doctor's office with his results from his reversal. And my husband pulled the car over on the highway and he got out and he came around to the passenger side where I was sitting and he opened the door and he just hugged me and we both just cried. It was a very emotional moment to find out that that hadn't worked because truthfully, you know, I was quite young, right? So I was about 24, 25 at that point. And I really had been naive in thinking that it it was a sure thing. It was going to work. So we were very, very upset. And we had the weekend in Ottawa. And I remember it was really difficult. My husband was in meetings all weekend. And I remember being in the hotel and by myself while he had to be at these meetings. He didn't have a choice. And it was just one of those weekends, it kind of goes by in a blur, you know, and then we, we went home. And at that point, I, ha I will say we didn't have great communication. You know, I think we both were very hurt. We were very upset. We didn't know how to communicate with each other about it. And so we both bottled up a lot. It was pretty upsetting. And it was upsetting, I think, for my husband. I think a lot of his uh, his emotional reaction was based also on how he knew it was important to me. I also think with us thinking about it, talking about it, planning for it in terms of like having children, I think he had started to get excited about the idea. What options were you given after the diagnosis? Our only option was to do IVF with ICSI, which is intercytoplasmic Okay, let me help. ICSI or ICSI is intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which really just means when a single sperm is injected into the center of the egg to assist fertilization using very fine micro manipulation equipment. In most cases, ICSI can be used to overcome severe male infertility. We had to do full IVF. So I had to take injections, uh, hormonal injections. Oh, isn't that fun? Oh, it's amazing. What an incredible experience. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, transvaginal ultrasounds. Who could think of any better way to spend every morning and getting your blood taken every day? Yeah. On top of the hour long drive that I had to do every morning to go and get those things done. 
Laura began her first treatment cycle in February of 2010, which involved six weeks of hormone injections, followed by egg extractions, and she had 15 eggs extracted, which is really great. It's so great to be young, right? (laughs) Remember, Laura has never been diagnosed as infertile. According to the doctors, I had a very healthy uh, reproductive system after some very invasive, very painful testing that that had to be done. My favorite was when I had to have my uterus clamped with a pair of forceps and a water balloon inserted into my uterus and blown up. Years ago, I went to the Melbourne Museum to see an exhibition of medical equipment from the early days of surgery. I swear to God, nothing much has changed when it comes to the devices that are used. If you're a woman and you've had the duck, you'll know exactly what I mean. Just because it's plastic now and not metal doesn't mean that it's any better. So they transferred two and then they froze. We chose to do freezing. Uh, So they froze two. And yeah, within 10 days, I had my period. So I obviously wasn't pregnant. It's interesting when I tell when I talk to people about it because I I consider that I had a miscarriage. You know, I I know that it's not the same kind of experience as somebody who say has a miscarriage at three months or further along because there's not the sort of pain I think involved. But I watched when they did the transfer. I watched those two embryos on an ultrasound screen be put into my uterus, and I saw my potential babies inside my uterus. And so it's. From that moment, I felt like I was pregnant. It's a pretty powerful moment. So from that moment, I, I definitely felt like everything I did, every move I made was impacting those little embryos that were in there. In my mind, I lost the babies. And then I was very driven. I was very, very driven to make this work. And so almost immediately, I began my hormone injections for frozen embryo transfer. And once again, watching them being implanted. And then within 10 days, again, I got my period. And this is how how driven I was. At the time, I was also taking piano lessons and working on my Royal Conservatory of Music uh, level six piano exam. And I had my exam scheduled in June. And the day I got my period, two hours later, I performed my level six piano exam and got like an 82 or something on it. And I was a mess, but I was so on autopilot by that point. The things that that you do in these times, for me, I just was plowing through life, just so determined to succeed in everything I was doing. And, And at this time, during this whole year, my husband was in the States and in Peru doing work, and he was gone for six months of that year. So through all of that, not only were we going through that, I was alone. And so that was also, it was difficult for me. It was difficult for my husband too, because he saw how hard that was on me. And it was difficult being away from each other so much. And the thing is, is that um, when my husband was at home, he always, always asked me if, if I would like him to come to my appointments. And I always said no. I pushed him away all the time. For me, in order to keep my emotions in check, I had to just close myself off and just be, as I say, it's that like machine. I was just on this autopilot machine. I just, this just needs to work. I'm going to make it happen. I think, I guess in a way I sort of played the martyr, right? Like I sort of wanted, I took it all on myself. Oh, this is me. I wanted this. I'm going to make it work and I'm going to do it by myself. And he, you know, he'll be there for when he has to be there, which is for the ICSI part of it on the extraction day. I don't know why. I just, I didn't even really want him kind of to be a part of it. I think just because I felt like 
I was so grasping at like keeping myself together. It was not a healthy thing. But at the time, it's what kept me relatively sane through all of it was just do it alone, just do it by myself, get through it, you know. Some studies have shown that infertility can wreak havoc on relationships. Now, for those of us who've been through it, we don't need studies to know that. But here's one. A study of around 47,000 Danish women was released back in the early 2010s and it traced women's fertility and living status from the first year of their initial fertility evaluations. This is based on research from 1990 to around 2007 and it found that those who don't have a child after treatment are three times more likely to divorce or end living with their partner than those who do. A public service announcement. Let me say that shitty diagnoses don't have to mean the end of a good relationship. If you need support in your relationship, I suggest contacting Relationships Australia if you're in Australia. Jeff and I have been to a few therapists over the years and the guy we worked with more recently at our local Relationships Australia office was terrific. He got us. Give it a whirl. Now, the devastation from infertility can affect the individuals in a relationship in really different ways, and even that difference can lead to friction. So for Laura, the couple's infertility was due to a decision her husband had made with a past partner. So was there resentment? Oh, yes. Yeah, there was. Difficult not to, in a way, for sure. I don't believe I felt the resentment during the procedures. Because also that first, I have to say that the first round of IVF, I was really excited. I was like looking at baby stuff online. Oh yeah, I was so like, this is for sure. This is going to be great. And even on after the first one didn't work, I thought, oh, but the frozen, this will work. This will work for sure. After the second, the frozen embryo transfer didn't work. That's when I began having those doubts. And so did, and so did my husband. And, you know, that's why we, we took a break. We went away on vacation in the September, went to Iceland for a week in September and had a nice vacation. And then we decided, okay, yeah, we're ready now. You know, we'd spent time, you know, just trying to rebuild and, and, stuff with each other. And I guess it was no, must've been November that we started our second full round of IVF and ICSI because there were no embryos left now. And then it was in about beginning to mid December that we did our, our transfer or another embryo. This time we didn't get as many. So we never, we didn't have any leftovers. Uh, so I guess we must've only had two, one or two viable embryos at that point. And then again, within sort of two weeks, I had had my period again. And so it was unsuccessful. And at that point, I was done emotionally. Coming up, Laura talks about some really challenging issues, including suicidal ideation. If you or someone you know needs support, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or talk to your GP for options. Truthfully, I at that point, I was, I felt, I was suicidal. I was at the point where I did a lot of driving, not just to my appointment stuff, but I, again, living in Canada, I just, I do a lot of driving for my job. I go to people's homes to teach them music lessons. You know, I would be driving down the road, literally looking at, at hydro poles being like, hmm. And I know that sounds very dramatic, but it is exactly what I was feeling at the time. Laura admits to growing up in a very loving family. She was one of three kids, the only girl, and her parents had been married for over 40 years, and they're still married. Laura's mum loved being a mum, 
Even though she worked out of the home as well, her mother's number one priority was the kids, which is fair enough. So this contributed to Laura's pronatalist desires. In all fairness, if you grow up around a positive experience of parenting, why wouldn't you want to replicate that? Absolutely. And so, yes, I mean, my, I'd always had thought, and it's even why after I finished college in 2004, I decided to uh, be a self-employed music teacher because I honestly thought, oh, well, I can build my schedule around having children. So every life decision I made was based on getting married and having children. Two years of psychotherapy saved Laura's life from feeling that her life had no meaning because she'd been building her entire identity around motherhood and her future around having children. This is where things got really interesting for her, though. More than two years after she started psychotherapy, still grieving, she began a bachelor's in music and voice performance and fell in love with research. So after receiving the degree, she decided to do a master's. And that's when she was diagnosed with MS, a challenging and often debilitating illness that can sometimes lead to a loss of function. Laura has what is called remitting recurring MS. Let's have a listen. My husband and I at this point had started to talk about the possibility of trying to have children again and going through more IVF. I mean, our marriage had gone very, very rocky, but we decided, yep, I think we'd like to do it. And then in October of 2016, I had some vision issues where I lost part of my vision. My optometrist, I went to him and and I had a lot of pain in my eyes. And I've never been very in touch with my body. I've never really paid attention to my body. And so I said to him like, oh, you know, like I lost like half the vision in one of my eyes and it kind of hurts, but I don't know, like it's probably nothing. And he's like, "Um, actually, Laura, I want you to go and get an MRI because I think you might have MS. And I was stunned. I had, I was like, what are you talking about? He said, well, it sounds like it's optic neuritis. And in 85% of people who are diagnosed with MS, that's the first sign that they notice the first time that they actually really notice something about their bodies. Three months after I first noticed the eye issues, I was diagnosed with remitting recurring multiple sclerosis, which, you know, I always call it the uh, the good kind because progressive MS is a lot more severe and a lot more serious in terms of, you know, losing physical and cognitive abilities. Lots of people with MS have children and it's absolutely fine. I mean, some people, you know, worry, oh, you know, genetic, but really it's a minimal, minimal risk, you know, for having children. And in fact, often during pregnancy, people's symptoms of MS actually get better. They can get worse after, but generally, yeah, um, the problem is that you cannot take medication for about a year before you start trying, and then you can't take it when you're pregnant, and then you can't take it if you're breastfeeding. And for anybody who can get pregnant easily, great, okay, so and you don't have to breastfeed. So maybe maybe two years where you don't take medication. Well, with my husband and I, obviously having it not worked before, we could have been years trying to get pregnant. So my choice, which again, I, you know, and I use quotes on choice, it was have children, try to have children, try to have children and not necessarily be successful and not take medication and risk my physical or cognitive health or take the medication and, and not, not try to have children. And I chose my health. Do you think if you had not already tried fertility treatment that you might have given it a go when you received your MS diagnosis? 
Yes, because I would assume I would have been as naive as I was the first time we tried. And truthfully, I felt, and I don't throw this word out lightly, uh, the word trauma is not something I ever take lightly because I really was physically and emotionally traumatized by the fertility treatment experience itself. We'll be back with Laura's story in just a tick. Enjoy what you're hearing? Go ahead and leave a review. A nice one, please. Right here on the app you're listening on. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular make it easier for others to find us. But wherever you are is just fine. And thank you. I've spoken about my return to study. Some of my happiest days were when I was at uni, which I returned to when I was 20 after a few, let's call them gap years. And I've missed study. So when I was accepted to William Anglis Culinary School last year, it was a real shift for me. Studying cooking has made me happier than I've been in years. The shift from the internalization of, well, you know, everything to working with my brain and my hands in a different way has changed a lot for me. And Laura found the same. And when a professor of hers uh, in vocal pedagogy became a mentor, she was taken in a brand new direction, sex hormones and the female voice. Going back to school was a huge part of my healing process. So I took this course, vocal pedagogy, where you learn how to teach voice, how to teach singing. We started learning about sex hormones and the female voice. So you know how when boys go through puberty, their voice changes, right? Female voices also change, but also... Um, what I didn't know is how much female voices are affected by the hormonal phases that we go through in life, puberty, being on birth control, pregnancy, menopause. Uh, menopause, I think, is the most commonly known to singers, like to female singers. Menopause where a lot, you know, there are a lot of older women who perhaps sing in a choir their whole life and they've been a soprano and then they hit a certain age, perhaps around the 50s or 60s, and they they become an alto as our levels of estrogen and progesterone and testosterone all change, our vocal cords can start to thicken, which can cause our voices to become lower. Our vocal cords are about the size of your pinky fingernail. They're very, very small and very delicate. Also with age, just in general, the wear on our vocal cords, we can get calluses. So as we age and as we hit menopause, as our estrogen levels drop and our testosterone, progesterone levels change, all of those things create differences in our in our voices it can just sometimes just mean a smaller range it doesn't necessarily mean that our voice drops like gets lower but perhaps the high notes are a bit harder to hit i've noticed my voice getting deeper and my breath is more shallow and i take these little breaths that i never used to but anyway there are definitely changes. A few women come to mind too, like Joni Mitchell, for example, and Kathleen Turner. Seriously, their voices have changed so much from when they were much younger. Go have a listen. It's really, really interesting. And I never thought of it as hormonal or having anything to do with fertility treatment. When I was in university, I began teaching a woman named Linda, who is an absolutely incredible woman. She is a piano teacher, but she wanted to take voice lessons. I'd started teaching her granddaughter and then she decided, oh, you know, I'd like to. And she was about, oh my goodness, I don't even know if she was 60 at the time. And I remember her saying, oh, but I have this little old lady voice. And I said, no, 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 don't you worry. Like we'll, we'll work on it. Anyway, so because she was postmenopausal, it really sparked an interest in me. So my last year of my undergraduate degree, I decided to do an independent study 
on the effects of sex hormones on the female voice. I had a binder and I had all these pages where I'd written notes. I'd read all this scientific uh, research on sex hormones in the female voice. So I had a page, you know, a, a page with a title that said puberty. And I had all these you know, pages and pages of notes on all the research that we've done on puberty for women and their voice. And then I had a page on birth control and a page on pregnancy and a page on a menopause. And I had a page titled fertility treatments. And it's because of my own experience, knowing what I went through, because I was still teaching voice and still singing in choirs and singing solos with ovaries the size of softballs. When you're classically trained as I was, so singing sort of art song and, and opera, when you're trying to use your, your whole pelvic region and floor and your you know muscles, your core to sing, and you've got giant ovaries because they've been stimulated with all these hormones through treatments, it's extremely uncomfortable and it's very difficult to sing. And so when you're trying to bear down, but you have so much discomfort in your pelvic region because of your giant ovaries, the only way I can explain it is like, when you think about how, when they, when you do your fertility treatments, right, your eggs, get to approximately one centimeter each, right? So every egg that's developed, right? So I had 15 one centimeter eggs, plus you're bloated because all these hormones that you're taking. So all of this stuff that's filling your pelvic floor and, but with singing, you have to use your pelvic floor to support your sound. And so, yeah, I noticed a big difference. I wasn't able to support my sound very well. And on top of that, uh, the emotional impact of the hormone therapies, when you sing, you're expressing yourself and you're expressing emotion. And so when your emotions are actually sort of feeling compromised, have you ever tried to sing when you're crying, for example? So I'm doing my, my independent study and I've got my binder and I've got my pages of notes on puberty and birth control and pregnancy and menopause. And I had a page titled fertility treatments. And I had two quotes from two studies that I had found out of hundreds of studies I'd been reading. So I had pages and pages of these written notes for every other hormonal phase of a woman's life. And there was nothing, there was no research done on fertility treatments and the female singing voice. And that was the moment that sparked my interest in, in doing research. From there, Laura embarked on a small research project interviewing local singers and singing teachers and talking to them about the physical side effects of hormones on their singing. Of the 142 interviews, more than 18% had received hormonal treatment and many had experienced effects on their voice. From there, she did her thesis on the impact of infertility on female singer identity. Almost everybody, I'd say everybody that did the survey that had done the treatments had definitely had physical side effects. And that's the thing is that a physical side effect might be cramping. Well, cramping affects your singing. Way back in the day, opera singers, I'm not sure, maybe they some still do, um, but say sort of 19th century opera singers, if they were on their period, they didn't have to sing. They didn't have to perform because it affects, it just affects you, right? It affects you for a lot of women quite severely sometimes. And then my research took a more sociological turn. We all have a musical identity. So it might be like, what do you listen to? What do you, kind of music do you enjoy? And for singers, of course, we also have our own, our own identity, how we identify as a singer and our musical tastes and that kind of stuff. And how, you know, if we identify as a soprano, as an alto, 
or tenor. There are many women who sing tenor. Often these are postmenopausal women. And now you're working on a PhD focusing on how involuntarily childless women develop self-empowerment and community through singing in the Childless Voices Choir run by Helen Louise Jones in the UK. Awesome. Right now, of course, because of COVID, it's running online. And it's fabulous. I go, I sing with her every, I just had this afternoon, we had a session every Tuesday. She also runs on Saturdays. And she also runs something called the Healing Voice, which is a chanting circle every Sunday, which also is an incredibly powerful thing to engage with. In what way? For me, the first, I mean, the most powerful thing for me was the very first time I went on. And suddenly there were like 25 other childless women on a screen. And I had never in my life witnessed 25 other involuntarily childless women. I, it was incredibly powerful to the point where I had to turn the camera off and I cried through the entire hour while I sang. While you probably won't see me at the next childless choir or chant, I do get what Laura means when she says that we can become truly disconnected from our bodies. For women who are childless, for me, it feels like my body didn't do what it was intended for. So it feels broken and unworthy of love. Although really, it's something that so many women feel throughout our lives. So if you are looking to re-engage with your body, why not check out the choir? I'll add details in the show notes and on the website. So no doubt Laura's a pioneer in this field of research. And while she's not a scientist, she's hoping the scientific researchers are following. Through doing my research and through presenting my research at conferences, like singing conferences, choral conferences, and every time I presented, I've had at least one person, once it was a gentleman, the other times it was all women, who've approached me after and said, thank you so much. For doing this research. Um, I've, you know, never talked to anyone about it, or I struggle to talk to people about it. I feel really connected to this. I really appreciate that you're doing the research. And so for me, that's been incredibly healing, just meeting, you know, so I've met, you know, one person at a time here and there who is involuntarily childless, but to have that many women in one space was incredibly powerful. On top of that, the way that Helen discusses and engages with singing as a whole body experience, and especially one that really helps you to reconnect to your pelvic floor, to your pelvic area, because I think that it's, and as Helen talks about often, it's an area of our body that we become, I think, often disconnected from, uh, perhaps even resentful towards, because it's an area of our body that perhaps is not, you know, doing its quote, end quote, job, right? Because we haven't been successful in, in getting pregnant or, you know, or carrying to term. So yeah, so she uses the breath and breathing in down through your body and, and then just the expressive nature of singing. Singing is a, it's a vulnerable act. Your body is your instrument and it's a very expressive tool, expressive of emotion. And so when we sing it, yeah, it can be a very vulnerable thing to do. You know, you sort of often put your heart on your sleeve, you know, even if it's something like getting up and singing karaoke, for example. So now you're researching identity. How do you identify yourself these days? All the different stages of identifying as either infertile involuntarily childless I now truthfully just recently kind of suddenly was like oh I you know if we're gonna if I'm gonna label myself I'm involuntarily child free because I'm loving my life without children I'm so grateful for every day that I have and that I do what I love I work with kids through my teaching and I have developed some incredible relationships with those children 
and their families, because again, I go into their homes, right? So I become sort of a fixture in the family, which is just, it, it feeds my soul. Like I wanted to get my undergraduate degree. That was my goal. And seven years later, I'm doing a PhD, researching something that I feel is important and is meaningful. And, and also I, I had the choice. I could have left my husband and found somebody else to have kids with. I could have not taken my MS medication and you know tried to get pregnant. I made those choices that didn't really feel like choices. They weren't free choices, right? So yeah, I'm involuntarily child-free as far as I'm concerned. I am so satisfied in where my life is and I'm you know, not satisfied enough to just be like, oh, this is good. Like I want to do more. We talk about legacy a lot. So far, Laura's legacy is very niche, but to those who are buoyed by her research, it's everything. Really, isn't Laura someone you would want to sit next to at a dinner party? Hell yeah. I want to thank Laura for spending time with me, with us, and telling us yet another fabulous story about childlessness. Thank you for joining me again, and I'll see you next time. Bye. I'd love you to join the community on Facebook and Instagram, which is at Unripe Community. And if you're childless or child-free, you're welcome to join the private group, which you'll find a link to on the Facebook page. If you want to share a story or let me know what topics you'd like to hear more about, please drop me an email at hellounripe at gmail.com. And don't forget, if you enjoyed the show, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, including iTunes and Spotify, so other people can find it. The website is where you'll find a little bit more about me, plus all the show notes. Go to unripecommunity.com.au. 